Hello, and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music, and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert, although at the moment that doesn't feel (laughs) accurate, (laughs) and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers. I'm a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture ever since we were at university, which now feels so long ago that it feels like Elizabeth I was on the throne. Yes, you had the distinct look of Walter Raleigh at the time. (laughs) Um, This week we are belatedly, but not too belatedly, doing the the whole queen's death thing. Um, Tom and I, (laughs) the death thing, the death thing. I mean, how do you even, I mean, it was a whole, it was a mourning period. Tom and I participated in a way that neither of us was expecting, i.e. we joined the fricking queue to see the queen's coffin in Westminster Hall. So we're going to talk about that, but I think I want to kick off by, uh, uh, by the way, I don't think at the end we're necessarily going to have the traditional why the hype i think this one <laughs> itself. but um tom before we go into the, the queue and and other things we noticed can you just briefly as a historian indeed of monarchy place this in some historical perspective perhaps in terms of another monarch that reigned a long time perhaps in terms of the, elizabeth's own father perhaps in terms of the last female queen we had was there as much fanfare for the death and if not, why? And if so, why? Okay, that's interesting. The the context I have for this, and this is by no means my expertise, uh, it's interesting the tradition of lying in state and where does it come from? Um, it's interesting Queen Victoria did not want uh, to uh, lie in state um, after her death in the middle of London. And in fact, she uh, lay in state instead in the Albert Chapel in Windsor for a little bit. And obviously she was the previous a female British monarch that had had the longest reign until the Queen, you know, just overtook her recently. Um, in fact, Queen Elizabeth II also overtook Louis XIV recently, as many of you will know, to be the longest reigning monarch ever, um, at least in Europe. Um, so the so the tradition of lying in state in Westminster Hall, which obviously is was the heart of the action, actually the first person to lie in state there was Gladstone interestingly, um, because Westminster Hall until the end of, until the 1880s, I think, was still being used as a court of law. And so it's only right at the end of the 19th century that it gets taken over for these other ceremonial functions. Prime Minister Gladstone is the first person to lie in state there. And then it's been the tradition that I think Edward VII lay in state there, George V, George VI, Queen May, a lot of people forget, Queen Mary, the wife of uh, George V, and then the Queen Mother. Um, it's interesting, I think the Queen Mother, and we were obviously talking to people in the queue who had also queued for the Queen Mother um, and were telling stories of it was maybe, you know, two hours, we were told, three hours, if that, you know, it was all very leisurely. Um, so, yes, there have been precedents, but I think the sheer scale of people turning up was huge. And I think the numbers would have been even bigger for this if we hadn't been briefed constantly with all these horror stories of it is now 24 hours, it is now 28 hours, please don't come. Only the foolhardy were willing to do it. And I'm, I'm very grateful to you, Zoe, that you made me join the ranks of the mad uh, to kind of go through this ordeal. But, um, but yeah, I think the size of the crowds 
dwarfs really the the um, turnout for for previous figures. The one other non-royal figure, I guess, is Winston Churchill in 1965. He also lay in state in Westminster Hall, and his was the last big state funeral before the fall of London Bridge this year in 2022. Tom, how much of the nuts and bolts of the mourning period that was kicked off by Queen Elizabeth's death, how much of that was always already going to be taking place exactly as it was? I mean, how much of Operation London Bridge was something that was kind of centuries old in the main? And how how much changes from monarch to monarch in terms of the deep layering of ritual, which I would have imagined remains quite consistent, even if it picks up new things over the years. I mean, even at the proclamation, you know, we were told these people are doing that because of something in 1560 or whatever. So I guess my question just briefly before we move on is what we were experiencing, perhaps not what we were experiencing, but what we were seeing both in the funeral and in in other aspects of the lying in state, how much of that, you know, even the arrangement of the orb and the crown and the and all that, how much of that was just, it has always been, the, has always been thus, and how much is up for, up for change with each death? In a very boring way, I'm going to say that the appearance of always been thus has always been the, the kind of the mystique of the monarchy, however much of it is an invented tradition. Guess what, as historians talk about, the invention of tradition, and in fact the best essay on that subject is the David Canadine essay, famously, um, in this famous book called The Invention of Tradition, where he says that so much of what counts today as royal ceremonial was largely invented in the Edwardian period um, and really sort of perfected under George V. Um, So actually, if you even think about the route itself, that very impressive uh, procession from Buckingham Palace into Westminster Abbey, apparently timed at exactly 38 minutes. I mean, there was this extraordinary moment where they left at 22 minutes past two because they knew it would take 38 minutes to get from the palace to the abbey. And what are they going down? They're going down the mall. And you've got to think that the mall itself was largely laid out and redeveloped around the early 1900s. And it was laid out precisely because before that point, London didn't have a ceremonial way. You know, if you think about the comparison with other continental cities, you know, you think about Unterdeninden in Berlin or the Champs-Élysées in France, there are these big areas in the heart of the city that you can move troops through and that you can have a great procession in. London didn't have that. And so that whole area from the redesign of, you know, the, the new facade of Buckingham Palace, the Victoria Memorial, Admiralty Arch, all of that is remade in the early 20th century in order to create a stage set for exactly the kind of pageant that we saw this time round. So, you know, although it uses these ancient symbols, actually so much of the choreography of what we saw is only about a century old, I reckon. That is fascinating. Um, I, I didn't realize that about the, about the mall. How much, just briefly, Tom, before we head into more um, subjective realms, a lot of people were absolutely gobsmacked by the clothing, the costumes yeah. um, and the militaristic, for instance, when the coffin is, is taken into the abbey and then taken out and put onto the gun carriage. How much of the military dress is also invented tradition and how much of that, again, goes back a long way? I, and I'm no expert in this, so I got the sense that she was deliberately invoking aspects of her father's funeral and there were, or indeed her wedding or her coronation, like the queen is very self-conscious or was very self-conscious about the kind of precedents that she'd lived through. 
And so I think she wanted to sort of loop back in lots of ways um, to earlier moments in her life. The choice of music, for instance, a lot of people made um, great comment about the fact that she chose Morning is Broken uh, because it was the song that was used, I think, um, at her wedding to Philip. Equally, some of the other music that was chosen had also been used for her father's funeral. So, you know, I, I, the specific point about the uniform, I imagine that the, the kind of participation of all of the armed forces, you know, army and navy in particular regiments, that is very familiar. And what I would say was really striking this time around was how important the different parts of the union were in what was put together as well. I mean, the Pipers stole the show. Uh, the amazing, amazing kind of performance by the, by the Pipes and Drums was all about this kind of Britishness and trying to bring Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland all into the, into the fusion of elements. But I think so there's a kind of national um, summoning up of different traditions, but the Queen herself is also interested in the personal traditions of her father or her wedding that she also wants to kind of wink at. You know, she's had many decades to plan this. I mean, I did read at one point that the coffin itself was built 30 years ago. I mean, this wow. has been this has been sort of pending for quite a while. There's something a bit macabre about that. Mm. Well, and it's it must, what does it do to somebody to know exactly where you're going to be buried? I always think it's uh, it's interesting with monarchs when you go and visit the palace and you see the crypt with the empty tomb, like waiting for you as the next incumbent. Like, what does what does that do? Um, Zoe, do you want to say a little bit about what inspired your own desire to be? part of the queue and sort of take part in this this national yeah. moment well tom desire perhaps isn't the right word um it was more a sense of dawning realization that i could do it myself i suppose i'd gone down to peer at the queue like many other people and many journalists grab some pictures make some you know incisive observations that i would then uh, squirrel away and spew out in my column or something like that. But then I suddenly thought, well, am I sure that I always want to be the person who goes down and looks and writes and then, you know, lets the common people get on with the kind of huge thing of national importance? And I thought, well, why don't I, why don't I actually get down and dirty with it myself? The other factor was that I ran, I ran into, I, I nipped into, um, I think it's St. Thomas's Hospital to use their bathroom, but I got in an, in a way you're not meant to, which meant I then got out a way you weren't meant to and happened to bisect an important part of the end game of the queue. And a warden had said, oh, these people have only been queuing for three hours. And I'd, I'd started off at Westminster seeing people right at the end. And I kept thinking, wow, these people have been up for 30 hours. Um, <laughs> and then of course I found out they'd only been up for about four, been queuing for about four hours. So then I thought, oh, I bet this is one of those things where official guidance is like scaremongering and, and all the word on the street is like way out of whack with reality. And that's, Tom, when I roped you into it and said, come on, mm -hmm. I bet we can do it and it won't be that bad. Unfortunately, everybody else also realized almost at that exact <laughs> moment that there was a kind of a hole in the system, a, a loophole. Um, there was one sweet spot where was it was possible spot. to do it for about five hours. Yes, there was that one spot and then and then everybody thought, oh, well, we can have a sweet spot too. Uh, and so then we realized that we were actually going to do this. I mean, I was amazed you were able to do it, actually. But then I thought, come on, as a, as a historian worth your salt, both of us really should be doing this. And then we turned up and not a moment too soon, because 
Um, although Tom was trying to show that he was too decorous and restrained to kind of like push through the crowds, hundreds of people were flowing past <laughs> us. I, I was gonna have a nervous breakdown if he kept showing how polite and how he didn't need to jostle. And I was right, because had we let too many more batches of hundreds race past us, which Tom would have had happen, uh, we wouldn't have gotten in the queue because they closed it shortly after we joined because it got so incredibly long. We could see Southwark Park filling up um, to a kind of terrifying uh, extent. We arrived at basically eight and by 8.45, it was, it was a no-go zone. But that also means we got the queue at literally the longest that it was the entire time, which was 14 hours. So David Beckham uh, finished while we were underway. Um, but we had a lovely time, didn't we, Tom? Well, we were so lucky with who we met in the queue that yes. it also made, you know, I also thought, Zoe, you were right to make us kind of race on through at the start because we then ended up with a very merry band of companions who sustained us for the next 14 hours. And it's actually been very nice because they've also, you know, one of them in particular has stayed in touch with both of us early since. And it's interesting, not just that we had this shared day, but that like a week on, we're still remembering where we were the week before, like finding photos of us on the live stream so that you can see your moment with the catafalque. There we are, our little gang, yeah. uh, kind of, you know, for posterity with the Queen's coffin. I mean, I think, and that sort of is important, I suppose, that people felt that whatever their personal grief, and I think there were some people who were very sad, um, I think there was also just a remarkable sense of like this was a unique experience and a unique experience that people wanted to live communally and collectively and it did feel like a festival in places, a very boring festival, but a festival, like there was a, the mood wasn't entirely doleful. I suppose. Well, it wasn't doleful at all. I um, mean, but, but then nobody, nobody yeah. suggested it would be. It was more like, we love the Queen. We want to, it, 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 yes, it was that, it was a, it was actually very positive and fun. And, you know, it was very positive. It was a very different thing than, for instance, Diana or, you know, the Queen Mother, I don't think would have elicited. I mean, yeah. the thing is, when someone's very, very <laughs> old and they die in a kind of, you know, nice way, you're not going to get the outpourings. But, and, and when they die of old age, as we yeah. learned today, that was the official cause of death. Oh, well, that's a nice cause. I think, um, I think it's also, I mean, it's an, ob an obvious observation to make, but it was touching to see all the people wearing the medals. I mean, it's interesting what it said yeah. about the Queen as an emblem of the 1940s generation still, and even people who hadn't served themselves or people who weren't servicemen wanting to wear their parents' medals. I was sort of interested in that kind of generational transmission. Yeah. Also interesting to see how many people, you know, and myself included, see the Queen as a as a surrogate for their own grandmother in some ways. Like, you know, that what are you really mourning when she dies? Well, actually, monarchy is this amazing screen on which you project mm. so many of your other, you know, emotional ties, so many of your other kind of family histories that, you know, in a way, it's because she's a blank that you can fill her with the content of your own life that lots of people would always say, oh, my mum loved the Queen, or oh, my granny loved the Queen. That was the conversation constantly in the queue. And you feel, you know, you know, they're also thinking about kind of the passage of time in their own families and stuff. That clearly is, is, is part of the ritual. To, it's, it's so interesting, isn't it, to love the Queen, um, to mm. love someone you've never met, to love someone that will never know who you are. Um, I, I guess that must mean, I, for me, I, I certainly didn't, I wrote about this in the Jewish Chronicle, actually. I certainly didn't feel like a huge emotional bond, but I did feel grateful that she was uh, an embodiment of things that are so rare, if not impossible, 
um, now. Just the kind of, you, know, you could see just in her face, someone who was forged long before the smartphone. You know, there was none of this. She was not, her, her expression wasn't someone who was constantly looking for a selfie or a snap or there's, there's a sort of innocence almost, not, not, or a sort yes. of wholeness there to her. And um, so I, I think it's just interesting, you know, maybe what you love about her or maybe what one loves is just this gratitude that she wasn't, you love her for what she wasn't in a way. You love her yeah. for how she wasn't a product of modern forces of vanity and she yes. wasn't vulgar and she wasn't Margaret and she wasn't, you know, she was, <laughs> she was, you know, not that Margaret would have been bad, but, but that is the way I was coming in on it. But Tom, you know, you mentioned the cat catafalque, which is the yes. thing. Or the favorite word of the past month. Yeah. Yes, we. I. I mean, as soon as I saw that, actually, I thought, "Oh no, I have to go and see this." Um, you know, we were actually in the hall. We saw the thing. I was very struck by the sheer dazzle of scepter and orb, and I thought, "Well, and crown, oh, thought, delicious." Yeah, these people are rich and powerful on a level like, yeah, yeah. This is an expensive get up. And the real scepter and orb. Let's be clear here. We're yeah. not watching. We're not looking at the props. No. That is the scepter and orb that was first used in 1661. It's rooting so, you back into Restoration Monarchy. It's yes, amazing. you just think, wow, this is the imperial throne. I mean, you see it in the in those kind of glinting diamonds and emeralds and rubies. Well, it's interesting you say that because it is, and that's what was interesting about it. It was like the state made manifest. Um, I was talking to a friend about this yesterday, and it is the strange mix of her being a sort of grandmotherly figure and slightly everyday, and there she is with her sort of headscarf. And then yet her symbol at the end is sort of, the, as I say, the British state made material in a strange way. These are the emblems of sovereignty and it suddenly becomes very impersonal and very solemn. Um, and, you know, it's very rare that we see such powerful symbolism, I guess, in British national life, even though it's often there in the background. It's something about it being kind of constellated in, in one place that was very charged. Tom, tell us also, when we, when we got in, um, the first thing you said to me, you whispered it was, you know, you pointed you pointed me towards the the Charles the Second plaque, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, Charles the First plaque. So oh. on your walk down to the catafalque, you walk over the area where Charles the First was put on trial. You know, because Westminster Hall had been also the kind of highest court in the land, and so you know, in the 1640s, that's where Charles the First was put on trial before he was beheaded. So you know, you get a little memory of regicide on your way down to commemorate the Queen. I mean, it's that the amount of history packed into that amazing hall, a hall that goes back to the end of the 11th century, you know, that goes back to the Normans. It's got this amazing late 14th century roof with all of the angels. It's it's completely spectacular. And like the privilege of being in that space is part of the amazing theater of the whole occasion, I thought. I mean, people um, are asking me, Tom, I don't know if they asked you, was the queue worth it? What did you say when they asked you? I mean, I, I, so now I say yes completely. I think you can't lie that the queue did have a certain, you know, there's a kind of ordeal element in it as well. And there are moments where, you know, it's moving slowly and you think, gosh, why am I doing this? So like other spiritual journeys or pilgrimages in the past, the ordeal is part of the reward. And if I had to choose between seeing the queen quickly, you know, like two hours till he gets to the catavelt versus the 14 hours, I think I'd still go for the 14 hours because it's that way that the anticipation, the kind of forced sociability of it, um, and the sense of occasion is much greater. So yeah, I think it's completely worth it. It's, you know, clearly boredom is part of the package and being cold is part of the package, but you looked around you at these 
often much older people, sometimes people with mobility problems who are struggling along on the South Bank and doing this. And you do feel, well, if they can, why the hell can't I? What do you think, uh, Zoe? Because I didn't, as, uh, as you know, I didn't see the funeral live. Um, tell me about how you thought what you saw on Monday complemented uh, what, what we did with the lying in state. Ooh, um, I like that's a good Cambridge sort of to what extent question. Um, I, <laughs> it was, it felt, it did feel like a sort of um, much longer, yeah, corollary to it in the sense that it was, there was just a lot of different steps. You know, if the que if the lying in state was, um, a stationary thing really that the pilgrimage ended up with a single kind of tableau. The funeral was a sort of massively moving tableau slash moving feast, lots of different scenes that were first in Westminster, then she's gathered up and taken on a procession. She put on a gun carriage, taken on amazing music. You know, people were just staggered by the music, amazing military formations, um, asynchronous music, um, atone, like not atonal, but kind of dis disharmonic or dis disharmonious. Um, and then, you know, the long walk to Windsor. So it was just much more physical, I suppose the spatial aspects of the funeral were, were what yeah. was so sort of grabbing about it. And the fact that there was no rush, you were, you know, the solemnity was being rammed down your throat unapologetically but beautifully, but repetitious, the repetition mm. of the march, the repetition of the music, the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the way that the, maybe a gunshot or a cannon would sound without any, you know, going against the rhythm of the music. So I found that all very powerful. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder, Tom, if you think that the funeral represented a different leg, emotional leg of the journey to the initial, where mm. I was struck when I went down to Buckingham Palace on the day her death was announced, and you know, it just was a spectacle. It was an Instagram story. And it's trying to make sense yeah. of, was the queen's death an Instagram story or was it a moment of serious national pride and reckoning? And I'm, I'm wondering, I suppose the historian's answer would be both, but I'm just wondering what you think <laughs> of that. I thought the two registers were actually jarring with each other. I did not like the flowers. So I was very pleased that I did it. Um, and this is this mound of tributes that piled up around Green Park. And I went on one evening to go and see them. And then I went back on the Saturday just before the funeral. And it was you had to queue for two hours, three hours to see the to see the flowers at one point, which was which was mad. Um, and what we're teaching the flowers is like how human she was. I mean, a very polarized view in that she's either the beautiful young princess or she's grandmother to the nation. I'm really interested in like the queen's missing middle years. Like she's either remembered as like beautiful Cecil Beaton coronation photo, or she's, you know, the past 10 years, the past 20 years. And the middle bit of the queen, when obviously a lot of people didn't like her or her reputation was a bit more spiky, that's been sort of erased from the history. But down in Green Park, it was all about teddy bears and Paddington and balloons. And it was saccharine, you know, and it felt much more like the 21st century version of death where I think we have ended up being quite sentimental. Um, whereas the day itself and the lying in state, you suggested the, a much older register, something that's much less personal and has a kind of gravity to it precisely because it's older. I mean, the service itself with the Book of Common Prayer and so on, right, the, the whole thing is slightly alien. And I think that was the thrill of it. 
was it was it does feel distant because I think we're in a much more gushy kind of space emotionally, whereas the Queen's funeral was wonderfully unsentimental. It was uh, it it was you say it was all about the, the grand gesture somehow, mm. apart from the dog and the horse. Oh, I the love pony and the, the pony and the corgi. <laughs> Emma the pony, what a champ! I know my mother wept at first glimpse of Emma. Like you know, it's a, it's a beautiful story. In fact, the best thing I read about Queen in general was this piece about the Queen as a breeder of corgis and doggies. Like you know, the, the Queen's relationship to bloodlines and heredity, like the horses and the dogs, was some of the best stuff I read about Queen in the in the days that passed. I have to say that some of the English relationship to animals, I've, I have written about this before and commented, is, a, is it scares <laughs> me. I'm going to just be honest, it scares me. And I worry that the queen might have had a bit of the whole, maybe she, you know, maybe she sublimated having a human soul in favor of just passionately engaging with her dogs and horses. <laughs> and I, I do sometimes think that there's a bit of a an either or with the English, um, either humans or pets. And I'm thinking the queen was the was the pet one. Um, so so that I feel I feel what what Queen Victoria was doing with her actual children in terms of creating the bloodlines of Europe. You know, Queen Elizabeth II was just doing in canine form. She yeah. was obsessed with creating these dynasties. Yeah. Um, well, I'm she glad found a surrogate. See, I, that that concerns me a little bit. And I wouldn't be surprised if most of the viewership genuinely thought that was a legitimate enterprise i was just going to ask because you also as we wrap up you were you also watched the proclamations area which did feel very archaic in some ways all taking place in st james's palace and so on and i just wonder if you have any thoughts or perceptions of our new king charles iii and whether whether things are going to change will we ever see the like of elizabethan queenship or monarchy again if we turn the page on that i suppose i'm interested that Ben Judah wrote this piece saying that Queen Elizabeth II was the last absolute monarch. And um, do you think Charles is a new star? Oh God! I mean, I think the whole country is <laughs> united in thinking, yeah, sure. But that's very different <laughs> from the sorts of yeah. I mean, Elizabeth, we will not see her like again because we can't because nobody else will be born in 1920 um, mm. or whatever it was she was born. Maybe in, sorry, a few years after that. Um, so no, I think, I think Charles, but, you know, I was talking to a, a friend, um, yesterday who's, who's someone who's incredibly knowledgeable about royalty and the peerage and he has, he's 80 himself, but anyway, he was saying he doesn't think Charles is going to have quite the longevity of his mother. Cause he's already got quite high color. And I thought that's a good point. So mm. actually King Charles, maybe we, we have yet to see, he's a little bit of a, you know, pen gate, his, his sort of um, stink happens every stinking <laughs> time and his sort of furious mouthing at the servants to get him a new pen. Uh, it was understandable, but, but also potentially problematic and underlined the difference in temperament between him and his mother would never have done that. There's also, so he, he might be a bit of a, a, an unknown quantity, hot potato, who knows? We have this sort of so-called slim down monarchy to look forward to. But he may not be around for that long. Who can say? Um, I would say that there's huge public love of suddenly of Kate Middleton. Everyone is, I mean, yes. Wills seems to be a bit by the by, although I find him quite interesting. We don't really know who he is at all. Um, but everybody's It loving. does feel like people have got behind the line of succession now yeah. in an interesting oh, new yeah. way. And people like the public's affection is being channeled in one, in one yeah. stream. 
and people are very happy about that. And I think that, you know, God forbid Megan got near the throne. There, there really would actually <laughs> genuinely possibly be a civil war at that point, um, especially based on the feelings of our friends in the queue. Uh, but yeah, so, so Kath, you know, all hail, long live Catherine Middleton is what people are saying. Sorry, not Middleton, but Catherine um, is how she's now being referred to. So I think that's interesting. I think it's almost like Charles is like, yeah, yeah, Charles, fair enough. He's waited long enough. Bring on Catherine and Kate and Wills. Finally, Tom, before we finish with just a couple of minutes, uh, you know, we're in the middle of absolutely insane political instability, well, financial instability, potential political meltdown. Yeah. What role do you think monarchy has in such a context, if any? I think it, ne it never looks more valuable um, than in these kind of moments of extreme sort of rupture in the state. Uh, and maybe I'm making the old, you know, apology for monarchy, but I found it quite strange because I'm not someone who politically necessarily would always rush to, to, to defend the monarchy, but I've been amazed by some of my academic peers, including like historians of modern Britain, Zoe, people like you, whose response to this has been to decry the lack of dissent. You know, there was this very odd piece that was run um, in the LRB about grief totalitarianism. You know, we're in a world where sort of obligatory sorrow is taken over and you're not allowed to speak out. Um, and actually to sort of sneer at the whole thing and the, you know, including from scholars who spend their lives working on things like the semiotics of early modern monarchy. But the chance to go and see what that looks like in the early 21st century, they don't want to have anything to do with. So, I found some of the kind of intellectual snootiness and responses there um, fundamentally misguided because to me, what it, what the whole thing has shown is the strange mystery of monarchy, that i.e. the state has a human face. And I feel at a time where so much, as you say, the rest of our politics is, is, is cracking and breaking and feels astonishingly fragile, it makes you think that that, that plank of the monarchy actually is, is, you know, it was one of the last secure and I presumably will become again, last points of reference, last kind of compass, I guess, for our aspirations about what the country might be. Obviously it's a mirage, it's something we project, it's a fantasy, but it did seem like it represented something that had been passed down from the past and that is being passed on to the future. And so, yeah, I feel monarchy is the, is the temporal glue in a way that makes us still feel like we've got something in common with the Britain that we were. Um, and without that glue, I feel we could be feeling horribly adrift. Uh, does that sound fair? It does sound fair. I was talking to a young friend who's 24 or something about his feelings about the passage of Queen Elizabeth into death. And, um, and he was saying, it's like, <laughs> now Britain is just crappy, um, you know, crappy mm. high streets and stuff. So it's unclear what, what does tether us now. Um, so Tom, just, we, we're not going to do why the hype because we think we all know why. <laughs> Join us for a discussion of the Netflix version of Blonde by Joyce Carol Oates. It was a massive bestseller of hers. I'm interviewing Joyce Carol Oates myself on Monday and I will um, probably have some interesting uh, added color to bring to bear on, on that discussion. Um, anyway, for everyone who's interested in Marilyn Monroe uh, as a cipher and as a character, it's probably very much worth watching.